place it comfortably. So we're all settling into our first day of session. Um, Often the first talk of a session is a back-to-basics talk. And I remember from my years with uh, Robert Aitken Roshi in the Rinzai tradition, um, the teacher would always begin by giving uh, a Taisho, a Dharma talk on the Koan Mu, and then it would go from there. I don't want to give a talk on Mu at the beginning of every session, but I do think it's important to go back to basics on the first day and just have a very broad, integrated basis of what we're all doing here as a reminder. So the title of this talk, as you've heard me mentioned a few times um, on Tuesday nights, is the three-legged stool of Zen practice. The three legs of the stool are spiritual insight, meditation and the precepts. And they're all equally important aspects of Zen practice and people can take bits and pieces out of it, um, which may be useful for them. But really, true Zen practice comes as a whole, as a package. And they're the three aspects of the package. If you really want to mature in the practice, then you take up all three. Um, And there are some sectarian differences where some schools emphasise insight more than precepts, you know, or meditation more than insight or whatever. Um, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. Um, we just need to to commit to the whole practice, you know, in terms of maturing, and bring that into our into our work that we do in in session. Now, brief um, history of Zen in the West. Um, as um, some of you who are my age or close to my age would know, is that the big boom in Zen in the West in the 1950s and the 1960s um, was based very much on the writings of D.T. Suzuki. And D.T. Suzuki was a, a wonderful writer and a wonderful man who opened up Zen to the world. Um, and he very much emphasised the importance of spiritual insight. And in his words, he said that um, Satori is the alpha and omega of Zen. Right? It's like that's, that's all it is, basically. And um, so everyone was very enamoured with the idea of having this big awakening which would transform their lives, you know, give them freedom and end their suffering. And, uh, but it was a very, I think, largely speaking, a very romanticised idea and a very intellectualised idea. Like you just read books on Zen and, and, and you identify with the, with, the, with the words in the book and, right, you got it. Uh-huh. Um, more complex than that, or more simple than that, perhaps even. And then after a while, people realised, oh, yeah, if you want to have this spiritual insight, Oh yeah, you've got to meditate. Mm-hmm. You've actually got to put work into it. And uh, so it was there that Zen centres flourished, like the ones I went to in the west coast of California and New York and eventually to Australia and Europe as well. And so that became the basis of most Zen practice was long hours of meditation, session, um, with the aspiration of 
having some spiritual insight that would be transformative to you. Um, and then it's only, it's only later that the precepts started to be looked at and not even necessarily by, by everyone. Um, Robert Aitken, one of my teachers, was one of the first writers to recognise the importance of precepts and wrote a book on it, which I think you use for your, your precept groups. Um, but it's been, in my mind, um, overlooked and undervalued, and that's why I think it's important we have precepts groups and we bring that into our, our practice as well, to have a, a very well-rounded practice. So to look at them, each of those, uh, in a little more depth, um, the nature of what you would call spiritual insight, all the terms we use, the Japanese terms are kencho for a kind of a little awakening, and the word satori is usually used for a big awakening. Mm -hmm. Most people have kencho experiences. And mature into something else as they go along. But um, along with Robert Aitken, um, I agree that those terms that come from a foreign language like Kensho and Satori start to sound a bit sort of esoteric. And it's very, very easy to read so much romanticism into foreign words. And we moved more and more as time went on into just calling them openings. Just openings, you know. That way you don't you don't uh, make something too grandiose out of it. The nature of the well, the expression of the experience. There's many different ways that it's expressed in the Zen tradition through Zen teachers, poetry, whatever. But the one one of the ones that appeals to me the most is when. Uh, Dogen returned back to Japan from doing a lot of intense study in um, China with his teacher and had some awakening experience. So when he comes back to Japan, his friends, you know, gather around him sort of enthusiastically and say, what, you know, what did you discover? What did you learn? He said, well, I learned that the sparrow goes chirp, chirp and the crow goes crawl, crawl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And it's important, if we look at those words, he just didn't say the sparrow goes chirp, chirp. He said the crow goes craw, craw. So in those words, he's expressing just the suchness of life as it is, right, in a non-conceptual way. And he's also expressing differentiation. There's crows and there's sparrows. There's light and there's day. Mm -hmm. There's men and there's women. Right, so there's... It's not just everything is one, you know, everything is differentiated and everything is one. That's the intellectual way of understanding the experience. But when people have these experiences, um, for some people they're kind of, they bring a sense of elation for a while. Um, and for other people it's like, it's just, oh, is that so? Kind of experience, and it doesn't necessarily. It brings a sense of lightness of spirit, but doesn't necessarily bring a sense of elation. So there's no one way in which these experiences happen to people. But 
the sort of nature of it is, is that it's kind of having a vivid experience that everything's just so. That's all. Everything is just so. Mm-hmm. Um, another saying in Zen, might be Dogen again, is the, the walls are vertical, floors horizontal. Mm-hmm. It's basic as that. So what it is, is an experience where the conceptual mind, the thinking mind just pauses for a moment, like the tape stops for a moment. And instead of it prattling on in the background and trying to understand everything and work it all out, it just quietens down and then, like, reality just kind of hits us in this vivid way. You know, so it's all kind of like a version, everyone's personal version of what happened to the Buddha. He's sitting there intensely, you know, um, for a long time under the Bodhi tree. And then he just looks up at the morning star and something that the vividness of the morning star breaks through. Just the morning star. Mm-hmm. So not everyone may have an experience as transformative as what the Buddha did, um, but everyone is touched in some way by those experiences when they happen. And along with it being an experience of everything is just so, it's, it's not just looking at it as an observer in a sort of a very objective kind of way, like a scientist would. Um, there's also what you might say a, um, an emotional or a heart-based element to it as well, because in that experience is a sense of intimacy with everything, like being in love with the world as it is. It's not just, just that it's like that. It's like being in love with it, that it's like that. And so it's, it brings that sense of heart to it as well and that sense of intimacy to it as well. And in the ongoing experience of it, um, there's, a, there's a sense of freedom that comes from it. And as I was saying in the words last night in, in sort of traditional Buddhism, is it's to be free from delusion and attachment. But to use some other words, you know, to fill that out a little bit more, um, it's to be free from conceptual thinking and from language in the sense you can still use language, but it's kind of there in the background rather than the prism you look through all the time. So instead of seeing things as better and worse and superior and inferior, a lot of that drops away because they're just words that we project onto everything. It's not the way things are. It's purely a human projection. And we see through that very, very clearly. So as a sense of flow comes, that's the freedom, a sense of flow, not being fixated on things, not being fixated on the self or fixated on personal problems or intellectual conundrums, just flowing, sense of flow with life and a sense of openness to life. And that's, that's the experiential side of being one with impermanence, like being one with transience as the flow, and being open is the personal experience of um, interbeing, 
you know, being connected with everything. So that's, that's the, to transform those words into something intellectual, into something experiential. It's along those lines, you know, and we, we all touch that place to one degree or another as we mature in the practice. And not the only, not the only practice, but one of the practices that we have which is, um, uh, idiosyncratic of Zen is koan study. And so koans have been designed um, or added to a collection through the folklore as a way of breaking through this rigid, fixated, conceptual thinking that we project onto everything all of the time. Um, Because it's very easy to kid ourselves that we've got a spiritual inside, but it and, it and and there's degrees of it, but it can be just intellectual. Right? You just read a lot of books and you can repeat what you've read in the books. But what we're talking about here is something which is embodied and what's something which is personally experienced and something which you feel in your bones. Mm-hmm. So Carmen study helps you cut through that conceptual kind of cloud that we're living in, um, so and helps us to to have that clear kind of experience of suchness. Um, a couple of months ago, um, I, I had a, a brief talk with Ian McGilchrist, who's the author of um, *The Matter with Things* and. Um, uh, the Master and His Emissary, which are wonderful books on the right and left hemisphere of the brain, which you've heard me talk about. And while I was, and he's very much, um, uh, has a, a very strong affinity with Zen, even though he's never formally practised it. But when I was chatting to him, I said that it's become really clear to me, reading his book, that the Cohen system in Zen is a way of people, getting people out of left hemisphere entrapment. Um, we get trapped in our left hemisphere when we're caught up in concepts and language, kind of like a computer, and it takes over. It thinks it knows better when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't include the right hemisphere of the brain, which is intuitive and sees things holistically, and it's more connected in with the, with the present moment, that non-conceptual way. So when we do come and study, it sort of breaks us out of that left hemisphere entrapment that we're all courting to one degree or another. So that's spiritual insight. Uh, with meditation, uh, well, a few more words about spiritual insight. What, if it, if, if it happens without the grounding of um, an established practice in meditation or the precepts, it can lend, lead to a sense of freedom for people, but it's not necessarily, and a lot of artistic people are drawn to that, you know, because it helps with their creativity. Um, but I've come across people in sanghas that I did my formative training with who seem to have had some kind of insight and they were, they were artists or poets or writers, or whatever, um, but they didn't seem to have any ballast. You know, they're kind of 
all over the shop a bit in their everyday life. So they, they had that kind of freedom of creativity. Um, but there was something not quite complete about their practice. And when we meditate um, and we dedicate ourselves to it, it, it cultivates serenity. Mm-hmm. And to describe serenity in more contemporary psychological terms, serenity is emotional regulation, term we use in psychology these days, where you have emotions, but you're not caught up in emotional reactivity. So as you go through the vicissitudes of life where good things happen and bad things happen, fortune, misfortune, you can stay regulated and stable in the face of all of those changes. That's what emotional regulation is. Or to be able to to be emotionally regulated um, when people around you are reactive and dysregulated, you know, is, is a great skill to develop, particularly if you're a parent with adolescence, I would presume. Um, but in any, any circumstance. And um, some metaphors come to mind um, in terms of the experience of being grounded and having ballast you know, in meditation, being centred. You know? And it's like, well, it's not my metaphor, I'm sure people have used it before, but it's like sitting like a mountain, so a mountain just sits there and all the winds are blowing around it, you know, like the, the, eight, the eight winds, the eight dharmas, you know, which are pleasure, pain, loss, gain, praise and blame, and fame and disgrace, right? So all those winds are blowing around. But when you're grounded in meditation, you know, in years of practice, you're like, like the mountain, you're not quite so blown around mm-hmm. in all those worldly winds all the time. You keep that, that stability. So meditation brings serenity, um, brings poise. I mean by that psychological as well as physical poise and gravitas and a kind of a, a ballast to our lives. Do you know those Daruma dolls they have in Japan and they're, they're weighted on the bottom and you knock it over and it comes back up again and you knock it over and it comes back up again? It's a wonderful metaphor for resilience. I think there's a saying in Japan, nine times down, ten times up. Mm-hmm. Knock down, come back again. And um, that's, what, that's what meditation does for us, that we, we develop that resilience to deal with uh, the ups and downs of everyday life. Then to the precepts. Um, Some words of Robert Aitken um, that I read recently which really etched their way into my mind as a way of describing the importance of the precepts. Um, Robert Aitken said, you know, we, we talk about teaching compassion in Buddhism, uh, which is a kind of very whole, holistic kind of term. But what he said, what the precepts do is give us a hard edge specificity to what compassion is. Now, it's a bit of a vague term, 
But when you, you look at all of the different precepts, you know, not to harm, not to steal, not to use, misuse sex, not to lie, not to cloud the mind, not to harbour anger, not to praise oneself at the expense of others, not to criticise the faults of others, not to harbour anger and not to be stingy but to be generous and to protect the sacred, they're all the specific ways that we demonstrate compassion. And so when we, when we spell it out like that into those ten different forms, it gives us a much better way of ascertaining to ourselves whether we're actually, we are actually acting compassionately in the world. It gives something as a sort of a, um, a criteria to base it on and something to check ourselves against in everyday life. And um, so the precepts, meditation, spirituality, they're not like they're all, I know the metaphor is that they're three legs on a stool, but um, they're not like silos separate from one another. They, they, all come, they all come out of the same practice of developing you know, wisdom and compassion and and uh, groundedness in our life. So they're all they're all interacting with one another all of the time. With um, another Buddhist teaching, the Four Noble Abodes: loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They talk about there being something that looks like it, but it's not exactly the same, which is called the near enemy, like the near enemy of compassion is pity. looks like it, but it's not quite the same. So if we use that same idea to look at what is, what is the near enemy of spiritual insight, it's kind of like it's a romanticised, intellectualised idea. And because we've read the books or we've gone to the talks, and we identify with Zen or we identify with Buddhism, we think we've got it, right? but it's only up here. Right? It's got to become grounded. So that's where we can fall into that trap. With meditation, the near enemy of meditation are trance-like states where we can go into a, a deep state of calmness where we're kind of disconnected. Right? We're like in a samadhi bubble. Right? And we can we can go in and we can escape into that little bubble and have a sense of, of calm for a while. Um, but it's not actually helping us to be free and it's not helping us to engage with the unpredictability and the novelty of the world. It's just a safe little refuge to go into. So that, that can become a trap um, in the... In the literature, they call it to become a, a stone Buddha. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very rigid place to be. And with the precepts, um, I liken the precepts or practising the precepts to driving a car. And a, tr- a car has an accelerator and a car <coughs> has a brake and you need both. Mm-hmm. And... That's why I prefer the wording of the precepts to be in the negative, like um, uh, not to lie, but to be honest and truthful. And it gives the positive side of it that we aspire to as well. 
the negative is like the brake, the accelerator is like the, the free expression of Buddha nature that we can move into. And one of the risks of practicing the precepts that looks like practicing the precepts but is a very limited version of it, if we just go around with our foot on the brake all the time. Right, so we're always being self-conscious about inhibiting ourselves not to do harm, but we kind of we we walk around like that all the time, like we're too cautious. And um, we need to remember that there is this this other side, like generosity is letting go. Do you know? Um, love is letting go. Um, truth is a kind of letting go. It's a liberating kind of experience. So don't think of just the precepts as a, as a handbrake on your experience. That's part of it, because what it's, the handbrake is addressing is impulse control. And impulse control is very, very important in our, in our childhood development and, and, and as an adult. Remember, you've got an accelerator and you can drive on the freeway of Nirvana, you know, enjoy driving down the road, as we do here, you know, 110 kilometres, get into a flow. Um, so only put the brakes on when you need to and put your foot on the accelerator when you need to. And like driving a car, we, we do it so often, we don't really have to think about it, it's just second nature. And as you practice the precepts more and more, you don't have to consciously, so consciously conjure them up in your mind and think about them. They just become second nature as you go through life. You just know when you've got to put your foot on the brake and do the impulse control and you know when you can put your foot down. So, that's how we proceed into the rest of the session, Mm -hmm. sitting on a three-legged stool. Spiritual insight, meditation and precepts.